Welcome to the Bristol History Podcast with me, Tom Brothwell. The Bristol History Podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Bristol Cable. The Bristol Cable is the city's media cooperative owned and created by local people. This week, I met with Professor Madge Dresser to discuss the Bristol bus boycott of 1963. The boycott was the first black-led campaign against racial discrimination in post-war Britain. Professor Dresser was the first historian to document the boycott in her pamphlet Black and White on the Buses, which was first published in 1986. We began by talking about the origin of Bristol's black community, which is primarily a story about Britain's colonial relationship with the West Indies. The first thing I would say is that when you had the post-war immigration to Britain, it was not the beginning of a black presence in Bristol. It was the continuation of something that had been really founded in the 17th, 18th centuries, and perhaps before, because the first evidence we have of a person of African origin is in the 1500s from Africa. And there weren't huge numbers of black people in Bristol uh, in the 18th century, but there were some mariners and the odd uh, servant of uncertain status, whether they were free or not, etc. Some actors, a couple people with a bit of property, mixed-race offspring of slaveholders who were brought to be educated in Bristol, etc. And then the 19th century, although there, there were some people of color, on the whole, that kind of ceased after the plantations that people were emancipated. You had a few black people, very few, in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Then it begins with the um, recruitment of um, Barbadians and some Jamaicans into the armed forces. Uh, yes. And then you have the uh, 1948, and you have, you know, they have British citizenship. There was a labor shortage in Britain. Mm-hmm. And the other side of the story is that the Caribbean islands, particularly Jamaica, had been completely underdeveloped. Mm. All the money from the plantations had been sort of taken back to Europe, and when the slave owners lost, quote-unquote, their property, they were compensated, Mm. you know, 20 million pounds in those days for the loss of their property, but the enslaved people got nothing. And so the actual living conditions for people after emancipation Mm -hmm. were terrible to such an extent that when the Depression came in the 30s, there were riots all over the Caribbean because living conditions were so terrible. Hunger was rife, unemployment, and of course agricultural produce was hit hard. And there was a Royal Commission in 1938 to look into this, and the results of which were suppressed until after the war because they, what they found was that the real wages of agricultural workers in Jamaica and elsewhere were in real terms the same as newly emancipated slaves. Oh, really? And there were virtually no colleges. There were very few secondary schools. 
There was no infrastructure in terms of roads. So the underdevelopment provided a ready pool of labor for Britain. Yeah. Uh, f- for the time that Britain needed them. Okay. So they were significant, um, I guess, looking at simplistically in terms of push and pull factors, I guess significant push factors, yes. reasons for for people to be leaving the, the Caribbean and, and seeking yes. employment in, in the UK. And of course it split up families, mm. uh, caused a lot of trauma because it would be the young people going, but sometimes they had kids. The kids would be left with grandparents or aunts or uncles. Mm. And then when they established themselves in Britain, they sometimes asked for the children to be brought over, but it was 10, 8, 9 years later, the kids were traumatized. Mm. They were coming into a family they didn't know. Sometimes there was remarriages, etc. And there was a lot of dislocation. And I think that is something that hasn't really been acknowledged when we look at race relations in Bristol mm. uh, and, and also the health and psychological problems. A lot of people who came over as children having been you know, separated from their parents at crucial moments. Mm. Anyways, back to the immigration, what mm. was it like? Well, there were very few people coming until after 48 and then in between 48 and 62 you had a lot of people coming, mainly young men, mm-hmm. And the family started coming in the 62 with the Nationality Act yeah. when they were worried that they wouldn't be able to claim British citizenship in the same way. So by the late 50s, you were beginning to get nationally worries on the part of the host population that, oh, well, who are these people coming in? Mm-hmm. And they're different from us. And are they going to compete for our jobs? And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a lot of the white working class were sort of educated to feel well they might be poor but they were part of the great British Empire and they're part of the white privilege if you like Mm, they didn't use those terms and so it wasn't just economic worries there was a racial element and it had a sexual element Mm -hmm. you know these guys are coming over and consorting with our women and that was something that the groundwork was laid for when the GIs had come over in the 40s it wasn't a neutral territory and I think it was very traumatic for the Caribbean people coming here because they had been schooled to feel that they were British and they learned more about their British history in terms of you know the the greatness of empire etc than they did about slavery or Africa which was a no-no word so they came here expecting to be welcomed and they weren't so that was uh, you know a huge hurt I'm not saying they, you know, everyone was horrible to them, but uh, you know, it was very hard to get housing. Mm, for sure, that uh, might yeah. be something we, we could yeah. talk about in terms, I guess, of, um, I guess, St Paul's is synonymous, I guess, yes. as a centre for Caribbean migration. My understanding is that is because there was de facto colour bar, as it was called, in terms of, so it was difficult for people to live really anywhere other than you know that's where the community grew up where it did is that that's right well i mean remember bristol central that area was had a lot of bomb damage a lot of people were moving out anyways and then it was bought up by slumlords some of whom were immigrants themselves we think of saint paul's or it was popularly thought of as a black area actually it wasn't it was multicultural there were black people concentrated in certain streets but if you looked at the overall demographics it was maybe 30 40 percent at most okay so tiny numbers we're talking you know several thousand people if they had 
I always say, if the authorities had spent the money sending each kid to Eton, or its female equivalent, they would have saved themselves millions in criminal justice and Social Security because the infrastructure in which they were coming in, in terms of jobs, housing, and particularly education, was bloody awful. I asked Professor Dresser about the specific set of circumstances that led to the bus boycott. In 55, a local branch of the Transport and General Workers Union mm-hmm. passed a motion saying they did not want black people to work as conductors or bus drivers. That was perfectly legal. There was no legislation at all to outlaw racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. But it did go counter to the trade union ethos of universal human rights and the kind of liberals, quasi-Marxist stuff. But the regional leadership didn't want to counter this. People were very frustrated. Meanwhile, the Bristol Omnibus Company, who was headed by this Ian Patey, who was overtly racist and Rhodesian kind of, pro-Rhodesia kind of guy, used the workers' ban, it was only at one depot, as an excuse. As Professor Dresser has said, in 1955, a local branch of the Transport and General Workers' Union, the TGWU, an ostensibly left-wing and even anti-apartheid group, had passed a motion that, quote, coloured workers should not be employed as bus crews. The Bristol Omnibus Company and its head, Ian Patey, would use this single resolution as an excuse for operating a colour bar in terms of employment on their buses, as this clip makes clear. The point is that whilst we can obtain white labour in this city, we intend to go on engaging white labour rather than coloured labour. Now, the reason for the ban was the, the, the bus drivers, they, they said that they were not, they were worried about being undercut. Yeah. But that was really not true for a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. It was about they didn't want black guys and white women. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to touch black people. I mean, mm-hmm. there was, it was as visceral as that. prevalence of explicitly racist attitudes in Bristol was captured by a BBC report at the time. What would you think about coloured people coming to work on the buses? I don't like the idea very much. Why not? I wouldn't like to work with them at night. We don't want them at all. No, they cause too much trouble as it is. We don't want them. What sort of trouble do they cause? Well, I mean to say, um, we should all be out of work if they start coming on. They start ruling the country before long, won't they? It's my understanding yeah. that the, the TGWU were anti-apartheid. Yes. But then they were prepared to uphold these, as you say. They, well, they turned a blind eye to yeah, it. Yeah. They didn't challenge it. Mm. So they wanted to be seen to be liberal uh, mm. or not racist, but it was fine when you could criticise people elsewhere. Mm. And the regional organiser of the uh, TGWU, Ron Nethercott, for him it was about class solidarity and universal working men's rights and Mm. not wanting to be undercut. He didn't see race as a problem. And a lot of people on the 
uh, he was quite a conservative Labour Party type, but they don't they didn't look at race. Everything was about class oppression. Okay, yeah. And they didn't have the vocabulary or willingness to look at the race thing. What happened was you had people very frustrated within the Jamaican and Barbadian community, but it took Paul Stevenson, who was a well-educated, he, he was a youth worker, mm -hmm. he came from outside Bristol, his family had been there for generations, so he came in as a youth worker and he knew the ropes. Yes, that's it. And he was, as a Christian, very inspired by the 55 Montgomery bus boycott Mm -hmm. and Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of the boycott was mm -hmm. it did, it did appeal to him, and he thought, why not? He had a sort of a moment, why not have a boycott? Mm -hmm. um, so with these other people, and there were other women there who, Barbara Dettering, who was part of the West Indian Parents and Friends, mm -hmm. uh, and there were active community uh, activist women, but, but you know it was the men who sort of get, had the public face. Mm -hmm. These men with the public face were the West Indian Development Council, a group founded by Owen Henry, Roy Hackett, Audley Evans and Prince Brown to fight against racial discrimination. They joined forces with, as Professor Dresser has said, Paul Stevenson, a Londoner who had moved to become Bristol's first black youth worker. They hatched a plan to bring the Bristol Omnibus Company's overtly racist policy to public attention. Stevenson had been inspired by Rosa Parks' protest and arrest in 1955 and the subsequent bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. I was impressed by the fact that Luther King led a boycott of, of stores or banks and places where black people were not seen. And the boycott gave me the idea that if, if they can do a boycott of the buses in America to bring about change, I would call for a boycott. Stevenson arranged an interview over the phone for Guy Bailey, a well-qualified acquaintance of his who wanted to become a bus conductor. When Bailey turned up for the interview and was seen to be black, he was told that the vacancy had been filled. This was the smoking gun evidence that the West Indian Development Council needed to launch the boycott, which was announced on the 29th of April 1963. I asked Professor Dresser about the initial response to the boycott. So who, who were the supporters? Not the Church of England. Uh, oh, that's too militant. You know, we're all for... Mm. A lot of people who were anti-slavery yeah. or even anti-discrimination at one level were actually quite racist, but they didn't yeah. take it on board. And um, the people who really drove it, the Communist Party locally uh, with a couple of counselors were, were that, uh, you know, that way inclined. The University of Bristol had a, a number of people, particularly John Malos, mm -hmm. who himself was Greek from Australia, you know, of a Greek origin, who was quite a lefty, you know, and so they, they sort of mobilized some of their students. So you had certain pockets of people. Mm -hmm. I think some Methodists, uh, you know, uh, Methodists and Congregationalists had a long history of anti-slavery thing, didn't mean they were anti-racist. So you had some non-conformist Christians, mm -hmm. but there was a worry that it was, you know, going to get out of hand. So it was not widespread, mm -hmm. some of the support. And in terms of the press, 
they had to play a kind of a game um, because if you look at the letters they publish, who are their readers? Yeah. Some of them would be sympathetic. You had different kind of constituencies that emerged mm-hmm. in favor or not, all of whom were given some kind of um, coverage by the press in terms of letters or what have you. So you had pockets of white support, mm-hmm. mainly from the left, but not all of the left. Yeah. And then you didn't have a universal support from the black community either, no. because the community actually is quite intensely religious. Mm-hmm. And the religious, or, you know, not everybody, but no, no. there's a Pentecostalist strand, and they, and Pentecostalism is an American evangelical yeah. thing, and they're very quietistic. You know, they render, render unto Caesar okay. what is Caesar's, and so they didn't really want to be identified with getting their hands dirty in, in politics. And maybe there was a little internalized racism as well, who knows. Mm-hmm. So black community was not united, there were different constituencies, mm-hmm. but they had enough people to coalesce, to make a show, and then the moment was right. Just how many people boycotted the buses is difficult to say. What is clear is that it created an impact too big for the Bristol Omnibus Company and the Transport and General Workers Union to ignore. Bristol University students organised a protest march to the bus station on the 1st of May 1963, during which they were apparently heckled by bus crews. The response from the press was mixed. Professor Dresser points out in her pamphlet that the Western Daily Press wanted it both ways. They had referred in an editorial to the colour bar as being shocking, disgusting and degrading, but also said, quote, White men will never take kindly to working under coloured men, This is wrong, but it is inescapable. The solution, obviously, is to have sections in which coloured and white folk work apart so that the coloured man has a fair chance of promotion. Thus, the Western Daily Press were effectively endorsing racial segregation. An early supporter of the bus boycott was Sir Larry Constantine, a famous former cricketer and a member of the House of Lords as High Commissioner for Trinidad and Tobago. He brokered meetings with the Lord Mayor of Bristol, the Transport and General Workers Union, and the Bristol Omnibus Company's parent firm. Sir Constantine was a powerful and respected voice of support in favour of the boycott against an establishment that would all too readily have ostracised and ignored Paul Stevenson and the West Indian Development Council. Another supporter of the boycott was the Labour MP for Bristol South East, Tony Benn. In this 2011 interview, he was asked about Bristol's race relations around the time of the bus boycott. First of all, Bristol was a great slave city, and uh, I knew that from history, but uh, when I got to Bristol, I discovered nobody ever wanted to discuss slavery. It was the one undiscussable subject, although there were a lot of people from the West Indies in Bristol, but it couldn't be discussed. Now, I had spent a year during the war in Zimbabwe. I learned to fly there and I saw what uh, Africa was like when it was a British colony. And I became very much involved in race relations and uh, from that period on worked very hard on all the colonial liberation movements. So I had a great sympathy with the principle behind the bus boycott and when uh, uh, Paul Stevenson got in touch with me, I promised to support him. And uh, I rang up Harold Wilson, who was then leader of the Labour Party, just before he, well, while before he became Prime Minister, and Harold, as I expected, fully supported it. So I reported that in Bristol. And uh, 
Then I did a lot of talks at the trade union, uh, Transport General Workers Union, were very critical of my opposition to their view. Uh, the Bishop of Bristol was very scornful about Paul Stevenson and said he wasn't a communist but he was a troublemaker and so on. And so there was a lot of traditional opposition to the bus boycott idea, but um, I supported it and uh, Wilson supported it and it did gain a lot of support and of course the one. So it was a very rewarding example of what people can do if they really work on their own convictions and campaign for the things they believe in. In terms of its immediate aims and impact, the bus boycott was a success. It forced a conversation between the Omnibus Company and the Transport and General Workers Union, with the eventual result that a mass meeting of bus workers resolved at the end of August 1963 to end the colour bar on the city's buses. On the 17th of September, the Bristol Omnibus Company hired its first non-white employee, an Indian Sikh named Ragbir Singh, and the following week hired two men of Jamaican and two of Pakistani heritage. The bus boycott has often been cited, not least by Paul Stevenson himself, as a forerunner to the country's first anti-discrimination laws. The 1965 Race Relations Act was passed by Harold Wilson's Labour government and banned racial discrimination in public places. In 1968, this was expanded to include employment and housing. I asked Professor Dresser about the immediate effect of the boycott and her thoughts on its legacy. A couple things. Uh, one is, was there a quota that they surreptitiously imposed. And isn't it interesting that the first person that they employed is not African origin, it's a, a man with a degree in engineering, Ragbir Singh. So it wasn't like they were doing a proactive recruitment drive or what have you. There was claims, you know, that it led to the Race Relations Act. Well, it certainly got international coverage and helped raise the profile within the labor circles and Anthony Lester and people like that, Julia Gateskill. But it wasn't I don't think there's a linear effect. It was just yeah, okay. part of the things that helped move the culture of the discourse and the mm. culture of expectation forward to the 65 and 68 acts. Yes. But there were still problems. It didn't end discrimination per se. And there were also cultural problems about the integration of staff. One of the great things I managed to glean from an interview was one of the Caribbean people said, you know, we really didn't like mixing in the social club because the bus drivers had a really intense social life. Yeah. And he says, you know, because you just talk about buses and then they have these, this music, you know, knees up Mother Brown, you know. He said, we like to let our hair down, have a drink and listen to Calypso, you know, yeah. things like that. And with the Asians, it was even worse because they got... They were so resented for speaking Urdu or Punjabi in the bus canteen yes. because everyone thought they were talking about them. Yes. And so there was all that stuff going on that wasn't really honestly and unpacked and addressed by the employers or what have you. You know, it was far in advance of the days of trying to have a non-discriminatory culture. Yes. Yeah, having said that, I have to say that it's had so much resonance. I, you know, I was the first to document it. Mm. And I'm so glad I did, and I'm so glad that I interviewed white as well as black 
people on it because it isn't just a black history story. It's everybody's story. It's, it's looking at the history in a different way. But the thing had legs because I did it for no funding. I, you know, my Bristol Polly's at then was not interested. No one wanted me to do it because it was when Margaret Thatcher was bashing the unions. So you didn't want to give her a gift. And, and so the trade unionists in the first black head of TGWU didn't want to touch it with the barge pole. Tony Benn gave me encouragement mm-hmm. you know he, he he was good but he felt he couldn't go on record to say certain things but he did encourage me you know we did it on a shoestring in 1984 and then it kept sort of getting reprinted mm-hmm. first by Ralph Samuel in this book on patriotism and, and for Ruskin college and social history but then it got redone in 2007 with the abolition mm-hmm. and then by a left-wing group mm-hmm. in 2016 now I was in the Afghan own shop, uh, International Mart, mm-hmm. and somebody knew about the, the the owner said, oh, I want to know about your book. And so I gave him a copy of Black and White on the Buses, and this Afghan refugee was there, and he goes, oh, that's such a good book. Mm-hmm. And why? Because it shows how small groups of people mm-hmm. can uh, organize against an injustice and get some kind of effect. So I think it's kind of been... A, a nice alternative, just talk about slavery all the time. And B, it's kind of a encouragement to people. For sure. You know. It's interesting because the way that it has had cultural resonance after its time, and it seems to me, just in a very broad perspective, that what you say is true, that maybe it chimes more with people today. It's that story when you hear about it that you think, why haven't I heard about this yes, before? Yes, yeah. So I think it captured a moment that is having increasing resonance now. Mm. There's a, a real backlash within the black community against just talking about black history in terms of slavery, because mm. it's like teaching Jewish history in terms of the Holocaust. It's yes, very sure. depressing, yeah. and it isn't the whole story. Mm. And it's a victimhood story. So there's a kind of wish to have a more celebratory thing for and for young kids to have something to identify with and feel they belong to the city. Yes. And so I think that's what it's capturing now. It shows you about the power of ideas mm. helping to overcome structural change. But, you know, the, the civil rights movement is a grassroots movement sure. where people can change things. Yes. And I think that's really inspirational in a period now mm. where we all feel so helpless with corporate mm. structures determining our lives in so many different ways. The story of the Bristol bus boycott is inspiring to me for many reasons. First, it shows that change can be affected by even small groups of people when they organise and fight determinedly against injustice. On the same day that the Bristol Omnibus Company announced the end of its discriminatory employment policy, 28th of August 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was making his famous I Have a Dream speech in Washington DC. What was happening in Bristol was smaller scale for sure, but in many ways both were part of the same struggle for human dignity. The cultural memory of the boycott's success remains strong in Bristol, and at the time of recording, a petition to fill Colston's empty plinth with a statue of Paul Stevenson has reached almost 75,000 signatures. Professor Dresser also deserves great credit for documenting the boycott and interviewing the key participants for her pamphlet back in the mid-1980s. A lot of the great resources now available, for instance at bristolbusboycott.co.uk, are built from the narrative that she helped to establish. Many thanks to Professor Madge Dresser for speaking with me this week, and also many thanks to Firstborn Studios 
for allowing me to use the audio from their Tony Benn interview. Thanks to you for listening. And if you enjoy the podcast, then you can give us a good review on iTunes. And if you're able to support the podcast financially, you can do so at soundcloud.com forward slash Bristol History Podcast. My heartfelt thanks to those who have already done so. If you have any ideas for future episodes of the podcast, then you can email us at bristolhistorypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>